this, this leads me to a question. Did you do your homework? Did you read Romans 6 in preparation for today? Uh, I hope so, but what I really love about uh, really our church is that we are students of the word. We are disciples of Jesus Christ, and our studies up here really are a springboard into our personal Bible study, aren't they? And that includes this, this study from the letter from Paul to the church in Rome, and, and this is our passage today, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What I love about the book of Romans is how it is a comprehensive view of the gospel. The, uh, the Apostle Paul, he had this desire to visit the church in Rome, but he was hindered, so he sent this letter to them. He expressed in Romans 1.15 that he was ready or eager to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. Wait, we're talking about a church community. We're talking about the church in Rome. You might be asking, why do they need to hear the gospel? Aren't they already saved? The gospel is not something we graduate from. We need the gospel every single day. We need it today just as much as when we needed it before we were in Christ. And the reality of of what Christ has done on our behalf should really be at the forefront of our minds as we live. And I love this. The gospel answers the why question. Because God has forgiven you, we then forgive others. So the gospel is not only for our conversion, It's also for our sanctification. It's also for every single day of our lives. And it should, the gospel should really impact every aspect of our lives, amen? Let's do a quick recap of our study thus far. So Paul, he presents a systematic and logical explanation of the gospel in the book of Romans. And so let's look once again at those multi-syllable words that Roger first introduced us to. We have condemnation. We are guilty. We are justly condemned by a holy God. There's no good work that we could ever do that could earn us salvation. We are ultimately saved by grace through faith. And this leads us to justification, where we, the believer, is judicially declared righteous by God, by faith. And Roger, in chapter 4, really discussed Uh, Paul's defense of justification by faith, right? He looked at Abraham and David. Abraham, he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Pastor Isaac from uh, chapter five, he looked at the results of justification. And so we, uh, since we're justified, we now have peace with God. We also have been reconciled to God. We have a restoration in relationship In chapter 6, we transition to sanctification. What does sanctification even mean? To sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. Sanctification then is the process of becoming holy. In other words, growing in holiness, conforming to the image of Christ, growing in Christ's likeness. When is this process complete? Is it completed in this life? By no means. We live in a sin-sick world. 
although we are growing in holiness, we still sin. And 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Holiness is not perfect in us until we are in the presence of our Savior. It's then when our sanctification will be complete. And so I want to talk about the, just briefly the full scope of salvation. If you were here on, on Thursday night, you would have heard Tucker Votberg speak, and, and he mentioned this when he was talking about uh, living the victorious Christian life. So justification... It means we are freed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, we are freed from the power of sin. And glorification, we are freed from the very presence of sin. I have a lot of questions for you this morning, but here's one in particular. Have you been presented with new information that changed your perspective? Some facts that required a response. In movies and books, you know, this is a big part of the hero's journey. And one of my favorite examples of this is from the movie The Princess Diaries, not to be confused with The Princess Bride. But in The Princess Diaries, the main character, Mia, discovers she's not just an ordinary girl, but that she is the princess and rightful heir to the throne in Genovia. She is presented with her true identity. In light of this, she has a choice to either embrace this reality or to reject it. Paul is going to, going to be presenting us some facts. Facts we, as believers, are expected to know. Facts about our identity. Facts about what Christ has done and our identification with Christ. This requires a response from us. The question then is, are we going to live as we have before or are, are we going to live a new transformed life because of Christ? So if you are able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter six, verses one through 14. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. 
And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. It is truth. And even as Jesus prayed, uh, your word is truth and your truth sanctifies us. So Lord, I pray that we would be uh, just brought more into conformity to the image of, of your son, Jesus. And so Holy Spirit, teach us today. In your name we pray. Everyone says, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Looking again at verse one, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Wait, where did this question come from? We have to backtrack a few verses to see the context of why Paul is posing this question. And so look back in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Paul writes, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, looking at verse 20, it's not that people didn't sin before the law. The law just helped bring their sin to light. We read where that God's grace superabounds, that it superabounds over abounding sin. In other words, you can't outsin the grace of God. God's grace is far greater than any sin we could ever commit. This is good news, church, right? There is no sin that God's grace cannot cover. The payment of Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. But do people reject God's grace in unbelief? Sadly, all the time. So it's here in chapter 6 where Paul asks and answers his own questions. And I love how Paul turns this monologue into a dialogue. In many ways, Paul is anticipating questions this congregation in Rome might ask probably because he's already encountered these questions uh, throughout his ministry. And maybe it's something you have asked. Now, if grace abounds, why not keep sinning? If God's grace is revealed when I sin through his forgiveness, through his kindness, why not give God an opportunity for his grace to be demonstrated? Well, that phrase from verse 1, continue in sin, refers to the state of continually sinning or dwelling in sin, a.k.a. habitual sin. If you think that the purpose of God's grace is that you can live in your sin guilt-free, let me say, you don't know grace. God's grace is not limited to forgiveness. God's grace not only forgives us, but it transforms us. So shall we continue in our lifestyle of sin in light of God's abounding grace? Should we continue in habitual sin so that we might receive more grace from God? Paul answers this authoritatively as he sets the record straight, silencing the adopters of this inaccurate view of grace. He says, certainly not. This is a strong term, which means to perish the thought. Don't give this kind of thinking the light of day. This is not the purpose of God's abounding grace. He continues and says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It's in this question we are introduced to our first 
fact. Fact number one, believers have died to sin. Believers have died to sin. Well, when did that happen? It, it occurred at conversion when you were justified by God's grace. You see, because of the believer's relationship with God, we now have a new relationship to sin. We have died to sin. Therefore, how can we live in it? How can something that has died continue living? If someone has died in their house, how can they dwell in that house? How can they inhabit that house? Back in Romans 5, it speaks of only two kinds of people, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. If you are in Adam, you are dead in sin. If you are in Christ, you are dead to sin. What does it mean to be dead to sin? You know, we'll really be examining this throughout our study today as, as Paul answers this question. But briefly, indwelling sin, it no longer has power over the believer. Our sinful nature no longer rules or has dominion over us. We have a new ruler, a new master, and that is Jesus Christ. And let me say this, we as believers cannot engage comfortably, peaceably in habitual sin. It goes against our identity and the reality of the cross. There has been a, there's been a change in our lives and we must live accordingly. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. We do not dwell in former sins. Our relationship with God causes us to break away from habitual sin. Because we are in Christ, we are not defined by our sin. We are defined by our Savior who has washed us, who has sanctified us, who has justified us in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I love the word repentance because to repent literally means to change your mind. When we repent of sin, we have a change of thinking as it pertains to sin. Instead of loving sin, we agree with God. We adopt his view of sin. We cannot forget that it's our sin that required the brutal crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how serious our sin is. And so adopting God's view of sin means we hate sin. Our appetite towards sin, it changes. Our change of thinking leads to a change of living. Our change of thinking leads to a change of living. Our lives look drastically different than what they once did. How does Paul illustrate this reality? Going back to Romans 6, let's look at verses 3 and 4. It says, or do you not know? Guys, what is stated here is Christianity 101. This is included in the basics that we should know. Every believer should know this. And 
uh, for me, I didn't start grappling with this, start understanding this until Bible college. Paul, he removes the Romans' ignorance and reminds them the truth. He says, or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul talks about being baptized into Christ Jesus. And you might wonder, I've been baptized into water. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? So let's look at that word, baptize. It means to plunge, to dip, or to immerse. Baptize was a word that was used in ancient Greek times for what a worker of cloth would do when dyeing fabrics. For instance, they would take a white garment and dip it or immerse it in a basin of red dye. And when it is pulled out of the basin of red dye, it is no longer identified as the white garment. It is now a red garment. It has a completely new identity. Similarly, the believer took on a new identity when he was baptized or immersed into Christ. Believers take on the characteristic, characteristics of Christ's death by faith. And this is not a physical work, but a spiritual work. We are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Our identity has changed because of our union with Christ. So this immersion, submersion, and emergence relates to our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Water baptism is then an illustration or a dramatization of this inner reality. When you go under the water, it's illustrating that you are identified with Jesus into his death. You are buried with him, and when you come up out of the water, you are identified with Jesus in his resurrection and his newness of life. Does the act of water baptism change us? Does getting dunked in water save you? No. Because you could get dunked a hundred plus times and walk out the same person, right? But Paul uses baptism, uh, this word baptism, and it serves really as an illustration of what happened in us when we were saved, that we have died to sin and are alive to God. Water baptism is a physical representation of a spiritual reality that's taken place. And this reality means that when we celebrate Christ's death, we celebrate our death, our death to sin. When we celebrate Christ's resurrection, we celebrate our resurrection, our newness of life. Being united with Christ not only means that, yeah, we've died to sin, but yeah, we also experience that power of the resurrection. And this then causes us to walk in newness of life. We walk differently because we are different. We are transformed. And Galatians 2.20 is a parallel passage, and it speaks of this identification that we have in Christ. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a reality that we need to embrace. So know your relationship to sin. 
You have died to the power of sin because of Christ. Since you have died to sin, you have a new life. The believer has a real death and a real resurrection with Jesus. And it might not seem real to you. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel real because, as mentioned before, this is spiritual. But just because our identification with Jesus in his death and resurrection is spiritual, it doesn't make it any less real. It's just as real as if you were nailed to the cross with him. And it's just as real as if you walked out of the tomb with him. God, he knows our short-sightedness. God, he knows our frame, our frailty. That God blesses us by giving us a tangible, material thing such as water baptism to help illustrate this spiritual reality so that we can better understand this truth. In this next section, we see the implications of our death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. For if... Uh, that if right there, that's a first class condition. So it could be translated as since. This is a reality for us. For since we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died, has been freed from sin. We have fact number two. We are united together with Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. Let me say that again. We are united together with Christ, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. The old man, the sinful nature has died. And in its place, God has given us a new life. That phrase, united together, really speaks of that abiding relationship between a vine and a branches, like described in John chapter 15. Can a branch survive on its own? No. Such is the case with us. We cannot survive without Christ, without being united together with him. When someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ and is justified upon conversion, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. Christians do not live in the newness of life under their own strength and ability, but rather by the power of the Holy Spirit, by participating in the divine nature, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. God doesn't just save us and leave us hanging. He has paved the way through the cross and resurrection and has empowered us to live for him by his grace. So who is this old man? The old man is the self patterned after Adam. It's what we're born with. It's our sinful nature, the flesh. What did God do to the old man? He crucified it. He took the old man and nailed it to the cross. It was crucified with Christ. This occurred when we were saved and in the old man's place, God gave us a new man not patterned after Adam, but patterned after his son, Jesus Christ. God placed the old man, replaced the old man with the new man. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In this newness of life, believers have a new nature, a new inner man. The law could only reform the old man, but the old man is so corrupt that the only solution is to kill it. God crucifies the old life and gives us a new, the resurrection life. Verse six says that the body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin is still present. It doesn't mean we stop sinning, but this means the ability to operate as a slave is rendered inoperative. And if it's inoperative, then we should no longer be slaves of sin. Pastor Ben in the past has used an analogy, an illustration of a, a marionette, the puppet with the strings attached. God has cut those strings of sin so that it doesn't control us anymore. It's inoperative. This is so that we should no longer be slaves of sin, right? Paul talks about this idea of slavery to sin uh, later on in Romans chapter 6. Verse 7 says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. There is freedom in death. Think about this. A citizen is in their car speeding, and they get pulled over by the police officer. Let's say by the time it takes for the officer to get out of his vehicle and walk over to the man's car, that that man had a heart attack and died. What is that officer going to do? Give a dead man a ticket? No, that man is not under the jurisdiction of the officer since the citizen is dead. Similarly, because we have died with Christ to sin, we are not under the jurisdiction of our sin nature anymore. We are not under the rule or reign or power of sin. Before conversion, we sinned because sin was all we had ever known. We sinned because it was in our nature. We were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. We were ungodly. We were sinners. But because of our death, when sin tries to press charges, tries to condemn us through the law, we rest in the freedom found in Christ. The power of sin had on us, the power sin had on us is we have been freed from sin. This next section, verses 8 through 10, it really focuses on Christ. Since all these facts, they rest on Jesus and his accomplishments, Without him, none of these realities are true. Without him, it all falls apart. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. When does life with Christ begin? At conversion. So if we died with Christ, we then experience that life with him. And catch the change in prepositions. In previous chapters in Romans, we learn that Jesus died for sin, paying the penalty of sin. But what does verse 10 say? Does it say he died for sin? No, it says he died to sin once and for all. So not only did Christ's death deal with the penalty of sin, but it also dealt with the power of sin, enabling us to live victoriously in Christ. 
Jesus' victory over death is final. There's not this tug-of-war situation where you as a spectator are looking and being like, ooh, like death has a, has a bit of a tug there. No, the victory Christ has over death is undisputed. Christ has won. Remember these facts, these realities? Christ has accomplished already. It's historical. It's in the past. It has weight. It has meaning because Jesus is God. He has all authority, even authority over the grave. And as we know, he did not stay dead, but he physically resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, explains the importance of the resurrection because if Christ did not raise, we're still dead in our sins. We are still under the power of our sinful nature. But Christ is alive, and the life he lives, he lives to God. So Jesus, who himself is God, daily lives his life to God the Father. His whole life is given over to his Father. Therefore, since he lives unto God, then we, having Christ's life, are spiritually and supernaturally motivated to live to God the Father as well. So we've examined the facts that Paul has presented, right? Facts we are supposed to know. Can not knowing the facts impact us? Oh yeah. Not knowing all the facts can actually cause frustration. So when I was learning how to drive a stick shift in a church parking lot, because church parking lots are where you go to learn how to drive, am I right? So I was learning how to drive stick shift and I was just not getting it. My mom, bless her, was uh, the most patient woman ever. I was following her instructions. You know, I was pressing the gas. I was, you know, letting up on the clutch, but jolt, jolt, right? I was so frustrated because my best efforts weren't working. And then I discovered an important fact. My emergency brake was engaged. Guess what? Getting into first gear and driving stick shift was so much easier after that. With this in mind, let's review these important facts from this passage. What we need to know, and maybe it will free us up from frustration. These facts, once again, are believers have died to sin. Believers are no longer under the power and dominion of sin, of our sinful nature, Fact number two, believers are united together with Christ in his death, but also in his resurrection. And this is through identification by faith. This is all built on the foundation. It's all based on who Christ is and what Christ has done. The question now is, what do we do with these facts? Paul tells us, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does reckon mean? When did Paul visit Texas? To reckon is an accounting term, which means to take into account, to take inventory. It simply means to believe that what God says in his word really is true in your life, to agree with the facts. We are to account the old man, the old nature, as already dead. Put it on your ledger. Because if you are born again, this is a true reality for you. God has revealed this knowledge, these facts that we need to know, 
And so what's the proper response? It's to trust. It's to believe, to reckon them as so. And so catch this. God, he doesn't command us to become dead to sin. He doesn't tell us to crucify the old man. He tells us that we as believers are already dead to sin, that we're already dead to the power of sin and already alive unto God. And as mentioned before, this is because of our identification by faith with Jesus, uh, with Jesus in his death and resurrection. He then commands us to act on it. And so you may have some doubts. Am I really free from the power of sin? Am I really dead to sin? Maybe you've wondered that. Truth be told, it doesn't feel like we are. Since we live in a world full of sin, we ourselves, we miss the mark. We fall short of God's perfect commands. Even though we might not feel dead to sin, do we make our decisions based off our feelings? No. Our feelings, they change. My feelings, they change after eating Taco Bell, right? But God's word, it stands forever. It stands forever. 2 Peter 1.19, Peter says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. So here, Peter, he's really comparing his Mount Trinity, the Mount Transfiguration experience he had where he saw Jesus with his glory unveiled with Moses and Elijah. So in comparison with that, he's saying, we have a prophetic word made more sure. God's word is more sure than our feelings. It supersedes our feelings and emotions. So when you struggle and you're not feeling it, you don't feel dead to sin, Remind yourself, say, yes, I am dead to sin. I'm dead to that. It has no power over me now. Because I am in Christ, I have died to sin, and it's in Christ I walk in newness of life. By reminding yourself of this truth, this is not speaking stuff into existence. This is not blabbing and grabbing, as they say. This is bringing truth to the forefront of your mind. Reminding yourself of this reality is going to help you walk in the victory that Christ has already paved, not relying on yourself and your resources. And it's going to help you put into practice the next couple of verses. But let me add this. To ask a non-believer to reckon these facts true would be to lead them on. These truths apply only to believers. It applies to those who are in Christ. Someone dead in sin cannot walk in newness of life. So this next section is when the spiritual crosses over to the physical and the practical, where the rubber meets the road. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. What's so amazing is that you don't have to be in bondage to habitual sin. You can break away from the power of habitual sin. And it's not because of anything that you do. It's because it's everything God has already done. Jesus Christ broke the power of sin when he died on the cross, and it was applied to you at conversion when Jesus crucified your old man. So if you're relying on your own power and your resources to overcome the sin nature, you will become frustrated. You will continually fail. You will be in despair. 
And it's silly for us to even think that we can try to do this because it's absurd such as this, as if you are on a manhunt trying to track down the old man, then hold him down to wooden beams and try to nail that old man down to the cross. No, this is a work Christ did internally in us when we repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. So do not let sin reign. Do not allow sin to reign. You can say no. It's like this. It's like working at McDonald's and then quitting that job and working at Burgerville. You have a new boss. You're under new management. So if your old McDonald's boss were to come to you and say, I need you to mop the floors or I need you to man the fryer, you can say no because he's not your authority anymore. You don't have to obey them because you have a new boss. Such is the case for Christians. Before Christ, we were obligated to say yes to our sin nature, to our old employer. Now we can choose to say no. Verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Present. This word carries the idea of showing up for duty. And what are, what are our members? Your members are just parts of your body, such as your eyes, your limbs, your hands, uh, your ears, your mouth, right? The body is neutral in the fact that it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. For instance, your tongue can be used to lie, it can be used to curse, but your tongue can also be used to tell the truth and to worship God. We need to present these members to God. God, he doesn't just want your soul. He wants your service. We are no longer slaves of sin. We don't serve sin any longer. Rather, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. We serve Jesus. The only acceptable response to what God has done is to present yourself to him. And this is us yielding to God, submitting to him, so it's in Christ we are truly set free. The man or woman who is not converted is free to sin, but they are not free to stop sinning and live righteously because of the tyranny of the old man. But with those who are in Christ, we are offered the opportunity to obey the natural inclination of the new man, which wants to please and honor God. On to our final verse. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. David Guzik points out that this passage, it serves as a test. It serves as a promise. And it serves as an encouragement. It serves as a test. It's a test of our claim to be a Christian. Does sin have dominion over you? So many people assume they're saved. They show up to church. They do all the right Christian things. But just because you do those things doesn't make you a Christian, right? We need to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Are you stuck in habitual sin and it honestly doesn't bother you? Does anger have dominion over you? Does lust have dominion over you? Does pride, does covetousness have dominion over you? If you are a Christian, that should bother you. You should not have peace in that. You cannot be comfortable in sin. You cannot live peaceably with sin 
as a Christian. Do Christians struggle with sin? Of course. But there is a struggle. There is a battle with sin. It's not just continually giving in again and again. But we have been changed by grace. And we are being changed by grace. It's not all at once. It's not a bippity-boppity-boop moment where, boom, everything's good, you're sinless, not at all. But we are growing in Christ-likeness and holiness. It serves as a test, but also a promise, a promise of victory. It doesn't say sin might not have dominion over you. No, it says sin shall not have dominion over you. Even though we live in a sin-sick world, we know that in Christ, our victory is secure. We still live in the presence of sin, but one day we will be freed even from that, even the very presence of sin, amen? Lastly, it's an encouragement. If you are a Christian and you've been dominated by sin, there is hope. You don't have to live that way any longer because Jesus Christ broke the power of sin over your life. So many Christians live in that place of helplessness, of frustration because of either unbelief, because of lack of understanding, or, or just self-reliance. So know the facts, reckon them true, and present your members to God. God gives us the grace to grow and not be dominated by habitual sin, by the old man, by our sin nature. So, did Paul answer his original question? I'd say so. Shall we, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. The grace-filled life does not take advantage of grace, but it lives in the victory achieved by Christ through identification with his death and resurrection. Where the old man, our sin nature, has been crucified and has been replaced by the new man so we can walk in newness of life. Amen? This, the second half of Romans 6 continues with this idea of sanctification. and We obviously don't have time to cover that today. So I encourage you to study it on your own. Uh, I have two sermons linked up here. Uh, one on Pastor Ben's teaching and, and also David Guzik's from... Uh, covering Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. And it's in this last section where Paul answers the question, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Uh, next week, Pastor Ben will be jumping into Matthew 24, the, the Olivet Discourse, so make sure you're here for that. But before we pray, you know, I want you to find comfort in what Christ has done, that you are not under the power of sin any longer. I want you to find comfort, but also conviction. Examine yourself today. And if you are not in Christ, make that decision. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And he crucifies the old man and he gives you resurrection life that you can walk in his ways. So if you would, let's go ahead and stand together and pray. Father God, I thank you for my church body that we're able to study your word we thank you for these realities that we have in Christ, that we are not under the dominion, under the power of sin because of what Christ has done on our behalf. I pray that we would live in that victory that's been secured for us. And I pray that uh, we would not let sin have dominion over us, that we would submit to you, yielding our members to you, presenting ourselves before you, submitting to you, yielding to you, 
And I pray for anyone here who has not been born again. I pray that they would trust in you, that they would repent of their sin, turning to you as their Savior, the sufficient sacrifice for sins, paying the penalty, and giving us new life. So Lord, I pray that we would walk in that newness of life today, and, and we can't wait to just walk in that and, and ultimately be in your presence where we're free from, from sin altogether. So God, be with us this week. Pray that we would uh, just honor you in all that we say and do. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen. amen. We'll be blessed, church body. You are dismissed.